Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair and yep. his ice-cold demeanor and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. My name is Sergeant Andrew Scott. Come on, guys, don't do this. If I don't get breakfast, I get real grumpy. I don't think you like me grumpy. And you go in pieces, asshole. Let's kick some ass. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break, this podcast, the fan podcast looking at the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Today we're going back to 2012 and looking at the action thriller One in the Chamber. In this one, Dolph plays a seasoned assassin nicknamed The Wolf, who squares off against Cuba Gooding Jr. as they are thrust in the middle of a war between two rival Russian mobs. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 18. Forget the former things. Do not dwell in the past. The past is the devil. You can't run from it. It's always behind you. Hey, you! Stop! One mob family has a problem with another they call me. I'm a fixer, that's what I do. The target got away. We work on results, Ray. They've already hired in another shooter for the job. Who the hell are you? That's you. What exactly is it that you do? If you pay me enough, I'll probably kill anything that breathes. Your boy. I want to know his name and where he sleeps. They sent a dog to collect their scraps. Actually, they sent a wolf. It's a goddamn cliche. We started a war here. Wars are good for business. What about my money? I'm on my way. I'm not yours. Who the hell do you think you are? The bad guy. That's funny. I thought I was. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and coming back for his third round is Doug Greenberg from the Rocky Minute. Doug, thank you so much for joining me again, man. Sean, what's up, buddy? I had so much fun on the last two. I've been dying to come back, and I'm glad you picked a good one for me. Oh, that, that makes me feel good, man, to hear that. Uh, because, you know, it's funny. You and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago. I was like, man, like I sometimes wonder if I'm going to run out of guests or I'm sometimes going to wonder, you know, if, if I'm going to run out of people who are uh, willing to talk about some of these movies that uh, really fly under the radar, especially talking about them at great length like we do. But um, your willingness and enthusiasm 
I I appreciate to no end. So thank you. Well, I mean, thanks to you, I get a chance to watch movies that I probably otherwise would never have seen. You know, and I, I mean, they're not all they're not all uh, Oscar winners, but I mean, we, we talked about this the other day too. Like sometimes the bad ones are are the most fun to cover, aren't they? Oh, most definitely, most definitely. And I mean, I guess before we get rolling here, we've we've kind of I, I've established a bit of a tradition with the show. I always like to try and find a beverage to accompany our discussion. And uh, I was fortunate to. Here, I'm going to open it right now. Actually, there we go. Ooh, um, nice. I, I've been looking. <laughs> I've been looking for something Swedish, you know, to mm-hmm. kind of um to kind of align with our man of the hours uh, heritage, his background, and for the life of me. Man, I, I've been, if you listen to any of my previous episodes, I've been striking out. However, I did go to a specialty store, and I uh, just cracked open. It's called a Recordling Premium Swedish Cider. So it is imported Ooh. from Sweden. Yes, nice. I'm, I'm, I'm drinking this in, uh, in, you know, to kind of align with our episode, but also in celebration of Mr. Lundgren. How about you? Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I went straight American. I'm drinking a Kentucky bourbon called Basil Hayden. A uh, one of my favorites. It's a good bourbon. I think you were drinking that bourbon in the last episode, actually. Was I? <laughs> yeah, you were. And you know, it, it's it, you beat me again, Doug. You beat me again because here's the deal. I I feel like I'm always kind of finding these imported drinks or whatever. I mean, for crying out loud, I have a hard cider for crying out loud. But then you, <laughs> man, you're like that. You're like that cowboy who just strolls into the bar, sits down, and says, give me what you got. <laughs> give me something brown. <laughs> there you go. So, I mean, you have you have the uh, a great drink right there. Well, again, uh, this is fun. Thank you so much for, uh, for partaking in this one. This is going to be a fun discussion. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Um, it's, uh, you know, I'm sure not in, in a lot of your movies um, – uh, the man himself doesn't usually take a back seat to uh, another actor, but uh, here he is, uh, second build uh, in this one to Cuba Gooding Jr. Yeah, well, I mean, and I mean, look, when when we talked about you coming back, I think I sent you like the uh, what was it like three or four titles, and I said, okay, just watch mm-hmm. the trailers, tell me what you think, um, and you handpicked this one. So I guess before we really get into the film, why did you pick? one in the chamber. What was it about the trailer and about the overall conceit that you said, I'd love to do this one rather than any of those others. Uh, really was, it was Cooper Gooding jr. Um, I know the guy can act and I know, uh, a lot of Dolph Lundgren's, um, feature films have gone straight to video. Um, this one's no different, but, uh, I, I, I really wanted to see him go toe to toe with like a, a seasoned, actor you know a, a guy who's who's won an oscar in the past he's he he had a, uh, a run in the 90s that was that was second to very few you know so uh i i wanted to see him see how he how he measured up to somebody like who we junior yeah awesome well i mean you were able to view this on tubi uh mm-hmm. which can we say i mean I, I if if i may i'd like to go off on a slight little tangent but you know what's amazing about Tubi is I feel like I am watching so much more content on Tubi than I am any of the main streaming services. I mean, it's kind of like Netflix. What? What? What, what is that? I mean, no. I I don't know about you, but I go to Tubi more than anything else because I mean they have such a huge catalog of titles from the '80s and the '90s. I mean, everything from Jean Claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren, and they even have a few Seagal titles on there. I mean, 
it is such an awesome service. And yes, there are commercials. I don't, in my opinion, I don't find the commercials to be terribly intrusive, but um, I love it. And sadly, it does not get um, talked about. It doesn't get the, the the credit and the attention that I think it rightfully deserves. No, I agree. The, the catalog is deep and it's, I mean, you know, you, you figure like a, you know, a second tier streaming system would have a, a ton of B movies and stuff, which it does have a share of, but I mean, yeah, it there, has a some, lot of junk. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you do got to sift through, through some garbage, but I mean, there, like you said, there are some real, really good movies on there. And uh, yeah, I, I, I spend a lot more time on Tubi than I do on Netflix myself. Netflix is, uh, I, I don't know, I don't even know what to say about Netflix. They're trying to become their own thing. They want to be their own movie studio. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, this particular film, all right, one in the chamber. This is this is really an interesting one to look at. I mean, I okay. So this is my second time seeing it. Actually, uh, I had a ton of fun with this one. I'll, I'll just go to I'll just go to you right now before we really uh, peel back the layers of this one and look at it. What did you think? Did you have a fun time with this one, especially compared to some of the uh, the other titles of, of Mr. Lundgren's that I uh, that I directed you to and exposed you <laughs> to? How does this one compare? Uh, this out of the three that I've um, watched in, in preparation to doing a show, that this was my favorite. This one, it was it, it was a delight to watch. I, I started, you know, I started watching it, and uh, you know, you, you start off with an agonizingly long title sequence. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> agonizingly long. So, um, you know, I was, I was, uh, I was starting to scoff. I'm like, okay, <laughs> you're cracking my knuckles. Here go my notes. And then uh, I found myself like taking less notes and just enjoying the movie. I yeah. was real. I was, I was, I was invested in the story. Um, I, I really didn't know what to expect. You know, I, I heard, uh, I read that um, Dolph Lundgren's character was going to be this badass like uh uh almost mythical uh assassin type of, of character so i thought he was going to be like a stone cold you know uh in the shadows kind of guy but he's he's funny like every line of his every scene he's in it's you know he's he, he's a funny character in this and uh yeah. I, I loved him in it um i thought cuba gooding jr's acting was was you know off the charts um uh, the bad guys. I, I, it took me a, a little while to look past the fact that they're Russians, among other Russians, speaking English. I was going to get to that. That's a cliche <laughs> that, that I've never really liked. Okay, it takes place. Yeah. It, it takes place in this foreign country, and every character is Russian, but they're all speaking English. Yeah. It's kind of like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, you know, it, it took me a little bit to to get past that, but but once I did, I, I was really. I, re- I was really into it. Well, this is this is a really interesting one to look at because, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background, but I've said it on the show numerous times. I don't know if you've listened to any of the previous episodes, but as has been stated on the show numerous times, post-Expendables, Dolph Lundgren really became a workhorse, and his yeah. output since 2010 has been extremely prolific. This particular film... I would say because I've you know I've seen them all, but going back through and watching his films, uh, I would say this particular film I would put this in his top twenty. And what's mm-hmm. really interesting about it is, I mean, if you look at this film on the surface, like if you just look at it, you know, surface level, this is a very simple 
a meat and potatoes action movie. I mean, it's very, very basic. Um, I hate using the term paint by numbers because I think that's a little cliche, but I mean, that's really what it is. I mean, there's really nothing, there's not much really there, but man, does this film deliver in the department where it matters, and that is in the action department. Yeah, and that's, I think, a problem with with most action films these days is they focus on the wrong thing. We want to see... Uh, a lot of killing. We want to see explosions, car chases, crashes, guys jumping out of windows. Um, but I don't know. It seems like they 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 try to to make a story. They try to to make a you know something artsy out of it. But no, I mean it, action is a very simple formula. And if you stick to that and you write, it doesn't matter what the what the bones behind the story are. Just make it in- engaging enough where to to keep us interested. But focus on the action itself, and I, I think that's what they did here. Well, and there's, I mean, again, before we really um, go into this film, there's a couple behind-the-scenes players of this one that I would like to just point out real quick. Um, mm-hmm. For one is the director, as well as the screenwriter, and the producing team, okay? So this particular film was directed by William Kaufman. I don't know if you've looked at any of his other films, but, I mean, this guy, it's, it's really interesting because he works in the world of... Uh, direct-to-video, independent action movies, but Mm -hmm. every one of his films always delivers in the action department, okay? And I don't know if you've seen some of his other stuff, but he is extremely competent. He did a really cool little uh, cop movie called Sinners and Saints with uh, Tom Berenger that's that's, that's a lot of fun. I mean, and again, Mm -hmm. it's interesting because he doesn't, he knows his wheelhouse and he knows what works, okay? And so if you look at his films, like, for example, Sinners and Saints, he did another one called, I believe it was The Brave, if I'm not mistaken. And these are Mm -hmm. very, Mm -hmm. again, on their surface level, simplistic meat and potatoes action movies, but they always deliver. It's it's kind of funny. He's found a muse for himself in a sense. Uh, Louis Mandalore. Okay, Louis Mandalore has popped up in a ton of his movies, and he's actually in this film. He plays uh, he plays one of the members of the uh, uh, one of the Russian crime families. He's the he's the gentleman, kind of the good looking guy with the uh, the piercing blue oh, eyes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah th- that's Louis Mandalore, and him and uh, uh, he and he and William Kaufman have teamed up for quite a few projects. So this was this was helmed by someone who knows what he's doing. And the screenplay, I don't know how familiar you are with the John Wick movies. Have you seen the John Wick yes. movies? Yep. And yeah, that's the same guy that, that penned the, the John Wick movies did this one. Yeah, yeah. Derek mm-hmm. Kolstad. And mm-hmm. it's interesting because okay, the last film that we covered, The Package, was directed by, or excuse me, was uh, written by Derek Kolstad. And here Derek Kolstad is uh, you know lending his writing duties to this one. And it's really interesting because once again, it almost feels like with this particular film, he's doing a dry run in a sense and kind of laying out the blueprint for what was to, for what was to come in the John wick universe. Because Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but watching this film, I was like, this could take place in the same universe as John wick. Like it's really, yeah, you're not wrong. Uh, But you know, going back to the director, you're, you know, it's a guy that that knows where his money comes from. He knows his his uh, you know his meat and potatoes, and you know, not to use the same uh, cliche twice, but um, you know, he's not trying to do too much. Mm-hmm. You know, he he knows he knows you know what the fans expect of him, and that's that's what he he delivers. And yeah, yeah I, I could I could totally see you know like uh, you know you got a, a seemingly untouchable uh, you know 
killer out there that's just you know just just uh doing the lord's work and uh running through these bad guys and stuff so yeah i i could totally you know see him and john john wick working for the same agency well know? it's funny because i i didn't notice it when i watched any of the previous john wick movies of course i pick up on it watching one in the chamber recently but it's interesting it's it's very clear okay derek colstad and this writer he loves painting with the same paintbrush for all mm-hmm. of his movies okay because if you look at this compared to john wick Okay, especially John Wick 1. Okay, what do you have? You have lots of hitmen. You have Russian gangsters. And Dolph Lundgren's assassin character even has a dog. It's like, it's yeah, almost like, yeah. like Derek yeah. Kolstad just pretty much pulled uh-huh. out his script for one in the chamber and he just said, all right, let's rework elements of this and make John Wick here. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, it works, man. I'm, I'm not going uh, to hate him for it. No. No, it works, and I think it's okay. It's gentlemen like this. It's Derek Kolstad. It's William Kaufman. It's gentlemen like these working behind the scenes who really help elevate this above all of the traditional direct-to-video junk that we saw coming out in 2012, and that we even see today. And they do it virtually on the same budget, right? Six million dollars seems to be the the magic number when it comes mm-hmm. to budget with these movies. Yeah, and I, I don't but know if it looks if, great. Uh, if Gooding was commanding a, a, a high salary at this point, but um, you know, I, I, every, every bit of that six million is on the screen right there. Yeah. Well, and I mean, so if we just dive right into the film, I mean, you already kind of mentioned it, but the title sequence, I, I almost kind of wonder if, you know, when a title sequence is this long, I wonder if it's included merely to kind of pad the runtime. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was thinking this film, too. this film hits that 91 minute mark to the T like perfectly, <laughs> but it's, and I think that that helped that helped uh, it be as digestible as it is, is because of the runtime. But you know what, for a mm-hmm. title sequence, it's, it's not bad. I mean, it's, it's, it has a lot of flashy editing. It has a really kind of unique score. I don't know if you've seen the mm-hmm. show. Uh, it was on Cinemax, amazing action show. If we're talking action called Banshee, actually mm-hmm. but the titles, the titles, have you seen Banshee? No, I never saw it. I, I've oh. heard of it. I know what you're talking about, but never saw it. So watch the title sequence to this, and then go on YouTube and watch the title sequence to Banshee. It's The score is very similar. Just the editing techniques are kind of cool. But what we get uh, intercut with the titles are some uh, interesting touches. We get some uh, Bible scripture. You, we get various photographs. And then it also does this inter- – I don't know if you picked up on this, but it does this interesting effect where some of the letters will switch to Russian. Did you mm-hmm. notice that? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, it did. You know, but uh, if we look at the setting of this film, okay, um, obviously it's uh, it's Eastern European setting is uh, at the forefront of this particular film. Um, the film takes place in Prague, but I guess it was uh, actually filmed in uh, Romania. But mm-hmm. yeah, it it uses, it embraces its Eastern European setting. And I don't know if you felt this way or not, but I think there are some fantastic uh, shots and scenes of just the overall locale with the buildings and the overall um, outdoor scenes. I mean, it's clearly not stock footage. I mean, it, it looks like this mm. was filmed. This was filmed for the movie, and it shows. Yeah, I wonder if it's. It, it has to be dirt cheap to film in in places like that, because I mean, you have to think you got to spend money getting over there, and, and you know the the team and the production equipment and everything. So, in order to film itself, like the the. It, it has to be cheap as hell because, I mean, um, you're on location in an Eastern European city, uh, and and it, it it lives and breathes within the story. <clears throat> and you know, I, I 
I my podcast is a Rocky podcast. We constantly talk about how Philadelphia is a character, like you know, for all intents and purposes, another character in the film. And I feel like in a film like this, um, the the location is is part of the story. It's it's another character in the film. They use they use the location. You know, they, they're they're interacting with it. It's everywhere. You know, and then I I love it. I I think um, not not enough. Uh, I, I think too too much is filmed on uh, you know sound stages and in cities that are made up to look like other cities. You know, uh, I love to see on location stuff like this. You know, that's an awesome segue right there. I didn't even really think about that, but no, you're exactly right. If you look at this mm-hmm. film, in my opinion, I'm so glad you brought that up, Doug, because there are really three characters in this movie. There is Cuba Gooding Jr. There's Dolph Lundgren's character, and then there's the setting. And man, do they use it right. I mean, the setting, mm-hmm. I would argue, is almost more of a character than any of the uh, any of the bad guys, any of the uh, the Russian gangsters that we see in the film. I mean, it's I mean, it's at it's at center stage, and it uses it right. Yeah, and that's and you're left you leave the movie remembering those visuals, like like Dolph Lundgren's um, that hotel room. Um, you know, towards the end where, where he has that shootout in his bath towel, you know, like, have you ever seen a hotel or a hotel room quite like that before? No, it's a European you know? hotel. Yeah. <laughs> it's stuff like that for sure. Yeah. Well, that's, that's an awesome segue because I mean, let's just look at the two leads in this film. Okay. The two main characters we have, um, Cuba Gooding Jr. And Dolph Lundgren. So we'll save Dolph for the end. Cause there's so much more to say about his character, I think, than mm-hmm. than Cuba. But if we look at Cuba Gooding Jr., okay, so Cuba Gooding Jr. in the film, he uh, his character's name is Ray Carver. He is an American who is uh, who's living in Prague. You know, with regard to his acting and his overall character, I mean, he does a serviceable job, I would say. I mean, he's not amazing or anything in this film. And, and you look at it, and it's kind of like, yeah, I, I imagine... Th- Cuba Gooding Jr., the fact that, okay, this is an Oscar winner. He probably brought a lot of uh, a lot of financing and a lot of star power to this film. But you watch it, and it's yeah. kind of like, why couldn't any other tough guy have played this role? You know what I mean? He's he's not doing anything in the film that I think is uh, that is amazing. And he's certainly not bringing that, that acting talent that he won the Oscar for to this film. No, he's definitely, um, you know, he's not bringing his A game. But I think uh, his acting... You know his his acting when he's kind of I don't want to say he's phoning it in because I didn't get that feeling, but um, his like second class, uh, his second rate of acting, uh, I think is is just as good or better than oh, yeah. you know a, a lot of B actors, B movie actors out there. So um, no, I, I thought he brought it. I, I wouldn't. You're right. I can see other you know and, and name somebody, and I can I can picture somebody else in this role, but um, he does he does a, a good job. Like the, um, the emotional moments, I could feel the emotion on his face. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, his, uh, he, he, he sold me as, as a, a good sniper. Um, the hand to hand stuff. I, I have a big problem with the way they do hand to hand fights nowadays, you know, with the, the up close, uh, shots and like the, 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 uh, the quick cuts and everything. So you can't really get a, get a good, you can't really survey the entire fight and I have a big problem with that in, in uh, movies nowadays, but you know, I, I don't think he was hired for his fighting ability. No, no. And I mean, if you, okay, if you look at, uh, 
if you look at him in this role compared to, I mean, look, I'm just going to go there. If you look at uh, Bruce Willis and any of the things mm-hmm. that Bruce Willis has been doing in the past 10 years, I mean, Cuba Gooding, he's, he was, it's very clear that he was actually there on set from the beginning of the shoot to the end, mm-hmm. as opposed to yeah. any of these guys nowadays who show up for two days and then they pad those scenes <laughs> throughout yeah. the film. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They have to get all their work done in, in the two days they got them and then they're off to something else. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, he's, he's like you said already. I mean, he is invested in this film. You know, what's interesting is they don't give for him being the lead character. I thought, I don't know if you picked up on this or not. Okay. But he's the lead character who gets top billing over Dolph, mm-hmm. but Dolph is actually given more with his character than Cuba Gooding Jr. is. And as a result, Dolph, I don't know if you felt this way or not. Cause okay. Hey, I'm a little biased here, Doug, but Dolph, <laughs> you don't say, <laughs> but I don't know if you felt this way. Dolph is so much more fun in this yeah. movie than Cuba Gooding Jr. is. And if you look at Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character is Ray Carver. If you look at, okay, what they give him in terms of character development. Okay. He's the quiet badass. Okay. He doesn't get a heck of a lot of dialogue and what dialogue he does get. He's pretty much uh, narrating Bible scripture mm-hmm. throughout the film. I mean, he's, he's citing tons of, Bible references and until the, the twist that's uh, revealed in the third act, that's all they really give his character as opposed to Dolph's character. I mean, man, he, he gets to chew up much more scenery in this film than Cuba. Yeah. You, you forget through the first, you know, 20, I, I, I looked when we first saw Dolph it was 24 minutes in. Uh, you forget up until that point that this is a Dolph Lundgren vehicle. And then once he shows up, you're like, every scene that he's not in, you're like, give me more Dolph. Give him to me. Because, like, you're right. His f- From his outfits to to the wittiness of his of his dialogue, like, every, like he, I don't know. I, I can't say enough about the, the guy, especially lately. You know? Well, and... Yeah, and I I don't know about you. I don't know if you felt this way or not. But as I was watching this, okay, for being and I hate using the term generic, but I mean to an extent, this this film is fairly generic. But for being a um a standard direct video shoot 'em up action movie, okay, what they could have done with with Dolph's character is they could have just made him the standard hitman that you see in movies where he's just, he's just wearing the suit and tie. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? They could have just done that. But I would yes. argue, and and I don't know if you feel this way or not. But I think it is Dolph and his overall look in this film that helps it that helps the film be memorable. I mean, it's, I think it's Dolph's look that helps this film stand on its own two legs above all of the other, you know, hit, hitman on a final job. How many times have we seen that story? Okay, he's a hitman yeah. with a heart of gold, and he's on his final mission or whatever. I think it's Dolph's character that helps this that helps elevate it above all of those other uh, cliched stories we've seen before. Yeah, it's like a Sylvester Stallone and Assassins. You know, he's just one more job, one more job. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, um, he. I wonder whose call that was. Whose idea was it to dress him in these these loud, loud outfits? You know, I mean, he's supposed to be like this this mythical figure who's just like he he comes in, does the job, and he's gone before before the body hits the ground. You know, but yeah. Yeah, here he is wearing Hawaiian shirts and white loafers and these fedoras <laughs> and, and flashy as 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 can be. And I don't know. I, I I love his look. I love the way he acted this. 
like I said, I, I thought he was going to be like a, you know, icy stare down kind of stone cold, very few words kind of guy. And uh, no, he, he, he chewed it up, man. You said it. Well, I mean, that was one of my notes as well. I mean, when you go into this, okay, this film was, uh, Dolph did this as part of a, uh, a package deal, uh, is my understanding, with another film. He did this film in tandem with another movie by the same producers called The Package. Okay, and the package starred uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin, or Steve Austin, mm-hmm. however you want to refer to him. And you watch these films, okay, both one in the chamber and the package. You watch them, and you're thinking, ah, oh, man, on one hand, it's unfortunate that, but in this film and in the package, you have a guy like Dolph who's taken second fiddle to the likes of Steve Austin and Cuba Gooding Jr. But then if you watch these films, it's kind of like, all right, wait a minute. Yes, he is second build, but man, he, he's given the showier character. In both of these films, okay? And, I mean, you already said it, okay? So, Dolph's character, he plays a, um, kind of this, uh, this mysterious, uh, boogeyman hitman, if you will. Um, his name is, uh, mm-hmm. Alexei Androv, but he's known as the Wolf, okay? Um, Russian hitman, which, interesting, is, I don't know if you picked up on this, but I think, to my calculations, I think this might be the seventh time that Dolph has played a Russian, which is just really interesting. And yeah, I don't know if you picked up on this either, but uh, he, he's the first in 24 minutes when he comes into the movie, he's rocking a Russian accent, but then he kind of loses that accent by the end of the film. It's kind of like Dolph just kind of gave up on the accent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he was but, having too uh, much fun. Yeah, exactly. He was having too much fun because the dress code. I mean, I was wondering the same thing as you. I'd almost like to uh, take a look at the initial script because I can't tell if the character was written this way or if when Dolph came on board, he said, I want to dress like Frank Sinatra, if you will. You know, <laughs> I want to rock a fedora. I want to have a, uh, uh, I want to be wearing a, a Hawaiian shirt in every scene and wear these loud sunglasses. Um, he's smoking a cigarette in many of the scenes. And then what's, what's so cool, what a cool character trait is he has this dog that he brings him with him to various meetings. I couldn't tell if it was like a pit bull type mm-hmm. dog, but he has yeah. a dog with him. I mean, and it's very clear that I think Dolph signed on for this one because he got to play another fun character. And I think it was the characters that was driving, or excuse me, that has been driving his decisions of the past 10, 15 years. Well, maybe he had recently, uh, before this, took a vacation to Boca Raton, Florida, and saw how all the retirees <laughs> down there dressed and said, that's my next character. That's the look that I want. Yeah. But he, that's you the know, look I, mean, I want. The Frank Sinatra connection is, you know, it's valid. I mean, he listens, his character listens to Frank Sinatra. I think it's the same song, um, you know, two or three times that he, that he listens to or that he puts on. He put, puts on like a, a record player and uh, listens. I, I, I didn't write down the name of the song, but um, yeah, definitely a, a Frank Sinatra kind of feel. His character. Well, he also gets a really fun line of dialogue. That I mean, that again, this is what's so almost kind of frustrating about it is, again, he is not the main character. It's it's Cuba Gooding Jr. who's the lead character who we're supposed to go on the the journey with, but they give him not much at all as opposed to Dolph. I mean, Dolph gets a line of dialogue. I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but they ask him what he likes to do, and he says he enjoys fixing seventies cars and nineties mm-hmm. pinball machines. Like what a wacky, what a yeah. wacky little bonkers detail to give this deadly hitman. But I love it. Yeah, I yeah. love it. So, my friend, uh, how do we begin? 
Introductions will be nice. Mikhail Suvorov. Bobby Suvorov. Alexei. As for my unfortunate moniker, <clears throat> I'd rather you not use it. It's so goddamn cliche. Yeah, whatever. Alexei, tell me. What do you know about the current state of play here in the Golden City? Same old, same old, I'd assume. Two parties of different opinions. Knowing at each other's throats over trivialities. I like the way you think. I don't. Think, that is. I simply do. What exactly is it that you do? Well, I play chess with the old Borovets in the park every Tuesday, Thursday afternoon. I restore cars from the 70s, pinball machine from the 90s, and if you pay me enough, I'll probably kill anything that breathes. Probably. As a no innocent party, mate. Kids are off the table regardless, but I have no problem with women, although I only shoot them. Using her hands or a blade on a lady just comes across as rather weak and rather tacky, you know. I, I mean, 90s wasn't even the heyday for pinball. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you want to you wanna get some, like, re- you want to get real nostalgic about pinball. You're talking about, like, 60s probably, right? 70s maybe, but 90s pinball machines, okay. I mean, that's that's his that's his thing. Well, and did you, I'm sure you did, but his tattoos, okay? Mm-hmm. There's, there's a scene in the hotel when he's, yeah. you know, he's shirtless with the towel wrapped around him, but he has these tattoos. He has a wolf on his chest, which makes sense because he's nicknamed mm-hmm. the wolf. And did you look at his back? I'm pretty sure that on his back he has Stalin, Trotsky, and Lenin. Yeah. Tattooed I, it, it was like a, a Mount Rushmore of, <laughs> of dictators on his back. Oh, man. But it's it's... I mean, it, it's silly. Okay, we'll just admit that right now. It's it's such a silly character, but I wanted to see more of this. I mean, can we just say right now, they could easily, I think, make a sequel to this. And if they mm-hmm. did, if they weren't going to use uh, – because I was thinking about this. If they made a sequel, I think a great sequel would be Dolph and Cuba Gooding Jr. Instead of being adversaries, them teaming mm-hmm. up in the next film and uh, you know, and g- going on another adventure. And I think what that would do is that would allow – for some more character development from both of them, you know, in terms of their backgrounds and, you know, what their past is like, things of that nature. Sadly, we have, we haven't gotten that and we're probably never going to get it, but yeah. I thought that'd be great. And I even have a great title for it. Two in the chamber. <laughs> there you go. There you go. It sounds like you need to, you need to get right. In. <laughs> Although I don't think we'll see uh, junior uh, Gooding junior in uh, any films <laughs> anytime soon. Uh, but that's a discussion for another day. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna get to that here in a minute, actually. Yeah, <laughs> okay, uh, but to to kind of piggyback off of that, uh, I I can I mean this was kind of billed as like you know they they start off as enemies but then they band together to to beat the bad guys but that doesn't happen until like the last ten minutes in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean I can see I can see this uh, you know them them coming together as you know like a buddy cop kind of kind of film or like a buddy assassin kind of film. Um, I think, it, I think it would play well. I think these two, these two guys, like they, they had the chemistry, I would say. And I, I think, you know, I think something like that could, could be a, a successful film. You know, yeah. I could see that. Now I, w- I would like to see that. So like I said, get writing. Well, I mean, we haven't really fully, uh, you know, we've, we've talked at length about the, the characters, but we haven't really talked about, just the overall plot for this mm-hmm. particular film. Um, so basically, uh, 
the, the film is, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but did you ever see uh, Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. So Last Man Standing ago. is, yeah, it, Last Man Standing is pretty much like an Americanized remake of, uh, of the story Yojimbo, which is a, a classic Japanese film. And that's, that's basically what this what this film is, where you have these two lone assassins who are who walk into a town, who are hired by rival gangs, and what they're doing is they're pretty much they're being manipulated by the gangs, but in the end they are also manipulating the gangs to kind of you know turn on each other, and that's that's basically what we have going on here. So the film basically it, it opens with uh, the lead Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character. So this is Ray Carver. He's opening fire. On the uh, on the Tavanian family, so this is the family with Louis Mandalore, who we talked about earlier. So mm-hmm. he's hired by the opposing Russian mob family, the the Suvorovs, to take out the Tavanian family. However, he accidentally leaves Louis Mandalore's character alive, which of course pisses off the Suvorovs. So they hire another assassin. This is Dolph's character, uh, nicknamed the Wolf, to take out the Tavanians and. I don't know if you picked up on this or not either, uh, Doug, but if it sounds confusing, because even just me kind of trying to explain it, you know, it, okay, it does sound a little confusing, but the other thing I appreciated about this film is that it's really not. I mean, I think that's one of the perks of this film is that a lot of action movies purposely try to be confusing just to kind of make themselves look like smart action movies, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. This one doesn't, (laughs) this one doesn't go there. I mean, it works extremely well within its wheelhouse delivers a solid action yarn that I felt was, was pretty easy to follow. Yeah. You, you don't want to, in something like this, you don't want to muddy the waters with, with too many uh, characters. There's really, th- there's really only outside of the, the assassins themselves, like the bad guys, there's only two really main bad guys, right? After, um, after the boss of the, uh, the Tavanian, um, crime family gets killed, then it's just our, our buddy Lewis. Uh, uh, what's his name? Lewis Mandalore. Lewis Mandalore. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, it's the the head of the Suvorov crime family, Mikhail. Yeah. Um, after the, after the other guy gets killed, so there isn't a ton of characters that you have to. I mean, there's there's a ton of bad guys in there, but they're all like background guys. There's not too much. Um, like I said, muddying the waters going on there. Um, the thing that like early on in the movie that kind of drove me nuts. And I was like, this is completely lazy storytelling was the freeze frame title cards on each of the characters. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exposition shorthand. Yeah. 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 I, I said that, you know, but thinking about it, you, you're trying to squeeze everything into a 90 minute film. You can't, you can't get long and drawn out about, uh, you know, telling who's who, so, um, yeah, I, I I liked that you knew who everybody was. The story was easy to follow. It wasn't, like, confusing with a, with a lot of different characters. It was done nicely. Well, I mean, we were talking about uh, the two leads, obviously. And we were, you know, mentioning, obviously, Cuba Gooding Jr., how, okay, he's he's fairly quiet throughout the film, and he's not given much. They do give him a uh, kind of an odd subplot that, I didn't really feel was entirely necessary. So I guess before I go, before I give my opinions, I'll just ask you real quick. What were, what were your thoughts and feelings regarding the subplot, if you will, or just Cuba's relationship with the young gal in the movie? Completely unnecessary. Yeah. Um, 
It's like, you know, they have to put a, a female character in there. They have to have like a, I guess somewhat of a love interest for the good guy in the film. Um, the whole, but it also like, I, I guess to show the, his humanity, um, to show that he's looking out for her because he um, assassinated her father, you know, all those years ago. So it's kind of, it's kind of showing his humanity that he's just, he's not a mindless killer. Mm-hmm. He does have, uh, he has remorse for something that he's done in the past. Um, so I guess that's why, uh, you know, I, yeah. I can't really think of any other purpose for it. It's, I mean, and again, I hate using this term, but it's almost, it's, it's an action cliche in a lot of ways where any time one of these movies is going to make the lead character a hitman, okay, an mm-hmm. assassin for hire, it uh, it almost makes that character excusable, okay? It almost yeah, makes yeah, that yeah. character, oh, wait, he's not all bad, right. okay? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you remember, I one of my uh, one of my favorite action movies of the 90s was uh, The Replacement Killers with um, Chow Yun-Fat. And in that one, mm-hmm. okay... It's a hitman. He's on his final job. He's supposed to. He's supposed to kill a cop. But what do you know? What gets in his way? But a little boy, and he is not yeah. going to. You know what I mean? He's not going to uh, stoop that low. And so that's kind of what uh, what what hangs him up in the end. But yeah, it's interesting. Where okay, we have this subplot that not only is it unnecessary, but it it really doesn't go anywhere. Okay, we're basically. He's been following this woman named Janice, whose father he killed on a job. So out of remorse, he's been following her and looking out for her since she was a little girl. Subplot, obviously, like we talked about, it's it's there to kind of give humanity to Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character. But it's also there just to kind of give some stakes later on in the film. Because wouldn't you know it, this character is kidnapped and used as bait later on in the film. So, <laughs> and, and that's all she that's all she's really there for. Yeah, and again, in the interest of time, I understand what how why they had to advance their relationship so quickly. But like it was their first meeting, she's telling him, you know, her deepest, darkest secret as to why she left America, you know, because um, you know to let the audience know she was she was there. She saw her father get murdered by a you know cloaked figure, so she didn't know it was him, but she saw it happen, and that's and when he saw her. That's when, uh, you know, when he, I guess, had instant remorse and, and kept tabs on her all those years. Um, but they kind of fast-tracked um, their relationship. Like, she found when she found out that it was him that killed her father, she was angry at him. You know, I never want to see you again. But then, you know, the next scene, you know, she's, she's asking him for help. And, you know, it's, I, I don't know. I don't know. That, that, that got a little watered down, I think. Well, the actress here is um fun fact about her, actually. Um, the actress's name is uh, Claudia Bassels. And I don't know if you knew about this or if you followed the career of uh, Mr. Jean-Claude Van Damme, but she actually starred as the love interest in a film with, uh, with Jean-Claude called Full Love. What's interesting about this film is the film has almost become a, uh, a cinematic oddity or a, a cinematic UFO in a sense because – it was a, it's starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. He wrote it. He directed it. It was shot in 2007, and it still has yet to see the light of day. So oh, wow. Van Damme has an undiscovered and unseen film that is out there. But, uh, yeah, Claudia Bassels was in that one. And she so, – wow, she, she has to be, what, 20 years younger than Van Damme probably? 
So <laughs> it's interesting because I did the math on this one here because if we're going to look at the ages of the characters in this film, the ages really don't match up. So I looked mm-hmm. it up, okay, out of boredom, and I get I get Doug that it's a it's a movie, okay, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> I looked it up <laughs> and. Cuba Gooding Jr. is actually 11 years older than Claudia Vassals. So if if we're going to go along with that math, I guess when this Janice character was a little girl, that means Ray Carver was already working as a hitman at the age of 18 years old. Wow. (laughs) Wow, I got in young. (laughs) (laughs) So... (laughs) All right, we, we, we could forgive. Let, let's give him another two years or so. Let's say yeah. 20, 21. 20, okay. All right, yeah, we'll go sure. there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he graduated high school, and he graduated high school, and he found a, he found a gift. He found a calling. Yeah, so. got right into assassinations. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about the, 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 big, the big money shot, the big money scene of the film. Dolph Lundgren versus Cuba Gooding Jr. So... This is this is really kind of a, a a cool scene. I mean, again, we have a film that's kind of working within the confines of what its budget is going to allow. So basically, mm-hmm. and it's not it's not the first time that the two characters meet up, but it's the the first time that they have a real hand to hand fight. So, Alexi, this is Dolph's character. He corners Ray inside his apartment, and they have a really cool fight throughout the. It goes from the kitchen to the living room and. I don't know about you, but I felt the fight was, you know, pretty well choreographed where there's lots of destruction. I mean, they are crashing around the walls of the room and, you mm-hmm. know, slamming and everything. The, the only unbelievable part to me, at least, is uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. He does get the upper hand on on Dolph. Right. Okay. I, I don't know, but <laughs> he does get the upper hand on him and uh, he, he leaves him alive. He, he has a chance to kill him. Okay, so Cuba has a chance. He has the knife up in the air. He he can kill Dolph, but he doesn't. He he leaves him alive, and he he walks away. And I love his uh, response later on in the film when when Dolph, you know, he says like, "I I have one question for you," and uh, and Ray says, uh, "Well, why didn't I kill you?" He says, "Because nobody paid me to." And I yeah. thought that was like a, a perfect, like a great response. It was like he didn't. He was kind of telling him, like, you know, I didn't feel bad about killing you who was passed out and really couldn't defend yourself. Was, I didn't kill you because nobody paid me to kill you. Uh, it was a great response to it. Um, but, yeah, I love the fight scene. I always get, like, in, in claustrophobic spaces, I'm, I'm – and, and this, is what, this is what we do in podcasting, right? We kind of – you know, we, we kind of take a, a closer look than probably your, your average moviegoer. Because you know, because we're, we're analyzing these films, so mm-hmm. like when a when a claustrophobic like close quarters fight scene comes up, I'm I'm watching closely to see like how believable it is. But yeah, that like you said, a lot of destruction. Um, there's uh, you know, they they they're crashing into stuff. It's not like, uh, you know, it's not like they're 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 held to a tiny space and it's just like you know trading punches and kicks with you know without moving all over the place. Like that's what a fight's going to do. So I thought it was done well. I thought it was done well in like a close quarter setting. Well, one of the, one of the unfortunate aspects uh, that I found out within the past couple of years, I kind of directed you to this as well. Um, Cuba Gooding Jr. I was actually going to play the clip here in a minute, but um, Cuba Gooding Jr. was on a talk show and he pretty much alluded to the fact that uh, he didn't like working with uh, Mr. Lundgren. 
Okay, he felt that uh, that Dolph was unhappy on set of this particular film, and you hear that, and it's it's kind of unfortunate because it's kind of like I don't know how much I I buy that for a couple reasons. I mean, number one, Dolph. I mean, at least from what we are seeing, it seems to me that he's having a ton of fun playing this particular character, and mm-hmm. also, I mean, look, I'll we'll just get into it. Cuba has uh, has been under fire within the past couple years due to some indiscretions that have come to light on his behalf. So it's kind of like, is, is Mr. Is Mr. Gooding Jr. The, the most reliable uh, uh, source here for, for these statements. Who is the best co-star and the worst co-star that he's worked with? Oh, who's the best? Oh, who's the best? Who's your favorite? Maybe Jack Nicholson. Cause he's wow. so Jack. He's yeah. so Jack. Yeah. You know, I could, maybe I'll whisper it to Naomi and she'll say it because you're used to controversies. I'll let you whisper, tell me. Oh, I get that. Really? <laughs> Can you say? That a, was that a worst? Yes. You know why it was a worst? Why? Non actor. Oh! Wow. Now, <laughs> can't act. Who is it? Who is it? Not for me to tell. Not my secret. Oh, you can't do that. Are you doing it or not? You got makes a lot of sense. You can't say that. I know what she just said. I was gonna say it, Dolph. I mean, Dolph Lundgren. (laughs) Dolph Lundgren. I don't know what you did to him. I think he was just a little cranky. He shot in Bucharest, Romania. (laughs) Wow. I do adore him, but he was miserable. It's games. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know when you sent me that, that or or directed me to that first clip of him saying how grumpy um, Dolph was on set. I was, I was like, man, that that. It, it, it hurt my soul a little bit because I don't want to think about Dolph like that. He's he's not directing this film, so he's not really calling shots and, and like has any reason to, um, you know, to 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 go toe to toe with this guy. But then again, I was thinking maybe he's just like an A lister in a B film that's you know kind of a a baby cakes, and he wanted to to be um, you know waited on hand and foot and wanted things to be his way. You know, maybe that was a fact. So, like, who who really knows what the truth is? But um, I, I don't know. It, especially after you 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 enlightened me to the indiscretions that he's been accused of as of late. Like, you know, like you said, it's is he the most reliable witness here? He seems like a bit of a dirtbag. I mean, let's just go ahead and say it, Mister Junior. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But I mean, and and the other thing that's really interesting too that we haven't really talked about is. Okay, Cuba Gooding Jr. throughout the mid to later part of the 2000s, I mean, okay, yeah, he was an Oscar winner for Jerry Maguire, but he really kind of fell into this niche of being an action hero when, I I don't know about you, but I never really pictured him, nor did I really ever buy him as being a full-on action hero. So if, if Mr. Lundgren was grumpy on set of this particular film, it could have been the fact that, okay, Mr. Lundgren is, look, I'm a, a black belt uh, uh, Kyukushin karate champion here, and I have to pretend to get my ass kicked by, you know, mm-hmm. this Jerry yeah. Maguire guy. What is with that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that, I'm that the could... action star. I'm the action star here. That's, what is this here? It, it's a lot of pride that, uh, that Big Dolph has to swallow. Yeah. Well, okay, so if we, if we go into the third act of the film, I mean... Wait, the before final... you do that, uh, okay, can, yeah. can I can I take it back to the to the first uh, shootout in that in that counting room that that uh, uh, when Dolph comes in with the two guns, he counts yes. the uh, the rounds in, in each in each handgun before he starts shooting. 
that was, I mean, it was as unbelievable as it is because, you know, there's guys standing up and, you know, really slowly and, and struggling to take their guns out of their holsters as he gunned down, what was it, like 13 guys or something like that. Um, but, it, like, I, I love the uh, the detail where he counts out the rounds in, in each pistol and uh, he says, okay, you know, like that gives me four to miss. And then at the end, he's like, he realizes he has one extra one. And then there's a guy that's still alive. So he shoots him. And then he's like, yep, just like I counted. It was, well, and that's, uh, that's awesome because yeah, well, not only is it a great detail. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it's one of those instances where the title for this film makes some sense. Like the title actually comes into play in the film. I mean, they could have just titled this something dopey, you know, I don't know, out for a kill or, you know, hard yeah. to kill or, I mean, yeah. hard to kill was already used, but any one of the Bruce Willis titles that have come out within the past yeah. 10 years, I mean, they <laughs> like, could have used one of those and it might've worked for this one, but it's one of those things where it's, oh, they literally plugged the title of the movie into the scene here. I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, on the surface, one in the chamber is kind of, you know, campy title in itself. But when you see how it's how it is used in a film, you're like, huh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. And again, and again, I, I mean, I'm just going to say it. I think, I think this could have this could have uh, lended itself really well. I mean, we talked about it, but a sequel to this one, or if they're not going to do a sequel, I mean, I personally would love watching this. Can you imagine if it was a television show? where every episode followed either Cuba's character or let's be honest, Dolph has the the flashier, more fun character where it followed him on each assignment, if you will, each episode, that would be so much fun to watch. That would be, but he has to wear like a different wacky outfit in every single one. Every episode. Yes. I mean, because that's what, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Most of the wardrobe, most of the budget I think would go to Dolph's wardrobe, but you know what? I would welcome it. I think that would (laughs) money well spent. Well, you know, you, you mentioned shootout. So let's look at the, the final shootout here. Okay. Final shootout in the film is awesome. Where basically, uh, both, uh, it's mainly Ray Carver, actually. Okay, Ray Carver, he's in... This is Cuba's character, obviously. He comes into this nightclub, and he lays waste to uh, uh, one of the mob parties. What's interesting is he lays waste to the Subarov uh, family because Dolph in the hotel room pretty much kills the remaining members of the other mob family. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it, it, it makes the scene where, um, where Dolph loses the fight against Cuba, it makes that scene excusable because, okay... Cuba Gooding Jr. comes in. He just completely lights up this room. He gets everyone, but he, he he gets bested, and he is on the verge of getting shot, but then Lundgren, Lundgren's character comes in, right, and actually mm-hmm. saves him. So this is kind of, that was kind of a cool little twist there. Yeah, it was uh, – it was – Dolph, his character also, he's like the kind of guy that – like he doesn't enter a room. He just kind of appears there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean – um. Ray gets, you know, he, he gets, uh, he gets caught with his pants down. He gets shot and he's, he's about to get wasted. And it's, you know, um, it's, it's, I guess it's kind of a trope, especially in a film like this where, you know, help comes at, um, from the least expected source. Right. So here comes Dolph saving his ass when at this point, um, Dolph, the wolf had, had no more stake in the game. Right. Um, he was, he was, you know, he gone. He like he, he could have been gone and never heard from again. But 
he came back to like settle the score with the bad guys and in so kind of saving the guy that spared his life it's like a like an like an unspoken you know assassin's creed kind of thing they have a mutual um, respect for one another yeah, yeah. and and I, I think it played very well I, you know i was i i didn't expect him to come back at that moment so it kind of surprised me it was it was well done and you know it's like a, a tip your hat to to one another and uh you know, kind of go off into the shadows kind of moment. Well, and the other thing, I mean, to kind of piggyback along that, the other thing that they do here is, I mean, okay, for a good chunk of the film, I mean, Dolph is, you could say that he's the adversary, but I mean, he's, he's really not. I mean, he's also being manipulated by, mm-hmm. you know, his employers. But I, I loved the fact, I mean, in that clip that I played earlier, I love the fact how they, they give Dolph's character, uh, he almost follows a code in a sense, yeah. where he says, look, yeah. I'll shoot anything that breathes as long as it is not um, a, a woman and a child. And it, it, if it is a woman, then I'm only going to do it this way. You know what I mean? Yeah, like he yeah. has, he has <clears throat> no, a very not. specific code. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and that kind of goes along with the whole John Wick world that this kind of exists in. Because if you, you know, in those John Wick movies, those assassins all have that code where they can all go to that hotel. But once they're in that hotel, it's, it's guns are guns are, are holstered and there's, you know what I mean? There's, there's no mm-hmm. shooting on premise, you know, little touches like that. Is it silly? Sure. But it, uh, it, it, it lends some really rich characterization to, to these particular figures. Yeah. And you know, another thing I was thinking about his character too, um, like his, his attitude towards the, the killings, like he's obviously very comfortable in these situations. You know, he doesn't uh, nerves and stuff don't, don't affect him and everything. Plus the, the way he dresses. I, I was thinking like, does it seem like, like this is the course that he has taken later on in his career? Like maybe early on he's been, he's probably been at this for decades. Right. So early on he was like that, you know, um, that suit and tie wearing assassin, the, uh, the, the stone cold guy with the, perfect hairdo and the dark sunglasses at night he goes in he shoots the guy and then he's gone you know never to be heard from again and then uh you know a couple of uh, 20 years into the game he's like ditches the suit throws on a hawaiian shirt tries to loosen up a little bit wants to be a little more himself you know i just i I don't know i i kind of like wrote that backstory that he's just he's just kind of took his foot off the gas late in his career it's just like why why am i I let these young kids do this, do that hardcore, like, you know, stone cold assassin thing. I'm just going to chill and <clears throat> kill people. I actually, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I actually, now that you say it, I actually just developed what I think is a really cool backstory to, to Lundgren's Alexi character. So check this out. His previous assignment. Okay. He was hired to eliminate a crew of retired gangsters in a retirement community in Florida. And while he, it's got to be Boca. There you go. Yeah, he, he was there. He, you know, lit up this entire uh, retirement community of all these mm-hmm. of these retired uh, godfathers, if you will. And while he was there, he was like, you know, hey, I, I kind of like this style here. I'm going to mm-hmm. bring this back to Prague. And yeah. I'm going to, you know. <laughs> I'm going to make this mine. Yeah. <clears throat> I also like well, how, um, like, he's he's known as the wolf, right? But right. he introduces himself as Alexi. He kind of ditches the wolf nickname, which is, I kind of goes against, like, the mysterious assassin stereotype. Yeah. You know, he, he, wants to be, he wants to use, like, who wants to be identified as their real name? 
Well, with regard to uh, both Cuba's character and uh, Dolph's character, okay, so they, they part ways. They have the newfound mutual respect for one another. And Alexi's plan at this point is to go from uh, go from being a hitman to a thief, essentially, where he is going to go and he is going to steal what was left over from both parties. And he opens he opens the door for this invitation to uh, to Cuba's character because you know he's now obviously wise to the fact that they were being manipulated by these two uh, Russian mob families. But mm-hmm. Ray Carver declines this uh, this particular opportunity, and again, there you have your sequel. Okay, right. <laughs> you know, so. Well, I mean, there's <clears throat> nothing like taking advantage of an opportunity. You know, the, like Dalsy's Dalsy's uh he's an opportunist. You know, he sees he sees uh, success in in maybe you know a, a career shift. <laughs> you yeah. know, instead of just being just an assassin, like let's uh, you know let's let's kind of be- put our skills together and you know, let's make make a buttload of money. Yeah. Well, um, so that's the last that we see of uh, of Dolph's character. With regard to uh, for now, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, with regard to Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character, so what's interesting is, okay, he sends Janice away, and he, you know, he apologizes to her for killing her her father, and he later mails her the Bible that was uh, once her her father's, and then the film fades to black after this moment. This was an interesting touch because, okay, so Ray Carver has been throughout the film narrating and citing Bible scripture. So apparently he had never really what read the Bible or even for that matter, seen the value in the Bible until he stole it off this dead guy who he killed. I I guess, Mm -hmm. is that what we're to to believe here? Yeah, I I guess. But, and, and the Bible itself, um, I guess the, the dead guy, the guy uh, Janice's father, he was reading that Bible when he when he got killed, right? Right. Yes. And that's and Janice even says like that's my father's Bible, like he had it on him all the time. So that guy was I don't know what he did to deserve to get whacked, but um, he was a you know a God fearing man of faith and uh, who always had a Bible on him. But I don't know um, the the Bible verses he was he was quoting too wasn't I mean it was. Uh, it, it wasn't random. Like he, like the ones that he memorized were the ones that kind of pertain to like his life and his, uh, I guess, justifying what he does, you know, for a living. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So uh, I, I don't know like how, how much he read the Bible itself or was he just like focusing on, on the few, the few quotes that were important to him or a few passages, you know? Well, I mean, I think I think anything that uh, can help somebody find Jesus is uh, is okay by me, Doug. So you know, (laughs) even the assassins of the world. Well, I was uh, I was thinking, uh, you know, because I always like to close out my episodes with a song that I feel is uh, emblematic of the of the movie itself. And I thought of a really I thought of a good one. I don't know how you felt about this or not, but considering Dolph's look in the film. I think I'm going to play a little Sinatra. I think I'm going to play uh, "Fly Me to the Moon." What do you think? Yeah, I like it. I like it. He uh, <laughs> he has that Sinatra song that he that he listens to a few times, um, you know, throughout the film. So I think it's I think it's very fitting. There you go. There you go. Well, and the other the other thing that I mean, we've kind of danced around it and we've kind of talked about it, but 
in, in watching this film again, and I'm sure you picked up on it as well, but I mean, look, direct to video action. I mean, this has been a genre, if you will, since shoot what, since you know, the eighties, but mm-hmm. I really kind of longed for these days again, I was just kind of amazed. And maybe it's because I've been watching <laughs> so much direct to video junk of late, but I was just amazed at how good the film looks. I mean, for, for 2012, I mean, I don't know if I can imagine this going, you know, going theatrical, going to theaters, but mm-hmm. compared to what we have nowadays, I did this film looked, I mean, it looks good, man. It is very polished and put together. Yeah. If you would have told me that this did a stint in the theaters, um, you know, short stint uh, someplace in the Midwest and, uh, you know, a dozen theaters out there, I, I would believe you because it does look really, um, you know, it looks really fresh. It looks really, really tight. You know, the, um, uh, the cinematography of it is, is well done. Uh, it doesn't look like your typical, I mean, I, I go back to that first film that, that you had me on for direct action. And that oh, looked yeah, like, yeah. that look, looked like it, it was filmed with an iPhone. You know what I mean? Yeah. Compared- <laughs> the, yeah that was Canadian. <laughs> I think we can blame oh, the, the Canadian that- production. <laughs> Damn <laughs> Canadian. <laughs> Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, the look of this is, is really, really fresh and tight. And, um, yeah, if you told me that it was in the theaters at at some point, then I would, I would believe you, I would believe you. Um, we had talked about the, you know, the action genre and, and how, you know, and how they, you know, I don't, I don't know why, like, uh, you know, films try to be something that they're not, you know, you have a straight action film. You know what you have. You know what you want to do. Don't try to overcomplicate it and make it a think piece or something that you know with a with a twist ending. It's action. Um, get to the get to the story. Get to the action, and you know, in and out in ninety one minutes, and call it a day. You know what we want. Just give it to us. Don't try to overthink it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you and I were talking about it offline a little bit, so I'll just go there right now. Um, You know, if we look at Mr. Sylvester Stallone, I mean, he, you know, what's interesting about Stallone is he's been, uh, uh, you know, dabbling in both theatrical releases and direct-to-video stuff. And if you take a look, I mean, I don't know if you compared this or not, but, okay, if you compare this little movie with some of the things that uh, Stallone has done of late that have gone direct-to-video, like, for example, okay, Doug, compare this particular film with uh, Backtrace, the one that Stallone did with Modine. Oh, oh man. You know, Matthew Modine. Yeah. Like, which one looks better? No, well, I mean, this one, far and away. But again, like, that's that that's another, you know, they, they, they want to puzzle you. They want to throw twists at you. They want to get you thinking. Like, that's not... I mean, it's first of all, it's not action. I know not every movie Stallone has done has been action. Um, so maybe that one is supposed to be a little bit more of a, a uh, you know, a, I, I don't want to say think piece again because I said it three times already, but you know what I'm saying. Um, yeah. But that, I mean, just, just the look itself, like that looked like it was, it was done, f- filmed and edited over a weekend. You know, yep. com- compared to this, this looks like it was it was, th- and and um, the filming from what I read about this was twenty five days. Twenty? Can, can you not, believe uh, that? If that, I'm not mistaken, yeah. less than a month. That that a little film like this got virtually a month, and I mean, we talked about it earlier, but yeah, nowadays these action guys they'll be on set for not even a week or so, and I mean, and, and there's no how can mm. you how can you know, and and that's the lead star. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. And and they're only on set. I mean, I know you guys covered it on uh, on an episode of your show, but uh, Escape Plan Two. I was, I, and I'll just admit it right now. Here we're we're bad mouthing Backtrace. I haven't seen Backtrace, um, fortunately, but I did see Escape Plan Two. <laughs> And oh, I was just appalled at how bad that looked. I mean, no exterior shots whatsoever of the prison, you mm-hmm. know, lead me to believe that it was just some silly soundstage that they dressed up. I mean, it just, yeah. 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 That, um, that, that was one, one of those things, backtrace, um, escape plan two, where, uh, you know, you can tell that they had Stallone for about five minutes <laughs> and he had to get all his scene done in that amount of time, all his scenes done and filmed. Um, you know, it, it's like in Backtrace, his look doesn't change from like at all, like not a hair out of place from his first scene to his last scene. So, you know, they only had him for a handful of days that they had to squeeze everything in. And that kind of, that kind of garbage shows if you don't really, I don't know if you don't really care, but I mean, direct to video is direct to video, whether it's Stallone, whether it's Lundgren. I mean, um, you know, they, they all have about the same budget and you got your stars for, you know, a few days while, you know, while the, uh, I don't know, while the second unit is, is doing the, the rest of the, the work, but I don't know. I, I don't, I can't explain why this one looks so much better than the other direct to video garbage that I've seen. Well, I think, you know, I mean, it, the other unfortunate part, I don't know where you stand on the uh, on the state of physical media, but I mean, look, I'm a purist. I love physical media. I have a huge collection. And this mm-hmm. film was, it's funny because I actually just pulled out my mm-hmm. Blu-ray and I uh, the, the receipt from Amazon <laughs> when, mm-hmm. when I ordered it is still in there. And I mean, oh. when this came, oh, man. when this, <laughs> I know it's hard, it's sad, I know, right? But what's interesting is this <laughs> film, I think, I think the big reason why it looks good and why it, um, you know, why they had so much more budget for it, you know, back in 2012 is back in 2012, the, the DVD and Blu-ray market was still booming. I mean, there was still a market there. There was still, you know, people were paying between 15 to $20 for a brand, brand new Blu-ray DVD, as opposed to nowadays, the market really isn't there for physical media. People just wait for it to go on streaming. So if they're just going to wait for it to pop up on a streaming site, of course, it's going to be filmed with, uh, you know, as few dollars as possible. And, of course, the lead stars are not going to see much value in it. So they're not going to want to spend more than a week on set. You know what I mean? So on one hand, I hate mm-hmm. it. But on the other hand, it's kind of like, I, you know, it kind of makes sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I think for the actors that for, and we asked ourselves during the, our backtrace coverage is like, why did Stallone agree to this? You know, yeah. like what, you know, it, it's almost like the, you know, the guy that made the movie had, had, a, you know, Stallone owed him a favor, you know, and that was his favor that he called in. But, you know, um, I, I never, big production or small, I'd never want to see an actor phone it in because you have potentially, potentially millions of people on the other end that are going to watch that. And don't you as a performer owe it to us to give us your best. Yeah. Whether it's a big production or a small production. All right. Most so I, I, I hate seeing an actor phone it in. Um, but I, I don't know. Sometimes the guys are just out for an easy payday. They only got a, a couple of days of availability and, you know, they, they phone it in. Well, 
I've, I've had a ton of fun uh, chatting this particular film with you as, as I do the others, but okay. Mm-hmm. So the, the moment has come. If we, okay, Doug, if we take this particular film compared with the other direct to video uh, Dolph Lundgren movies that, uh, uh, that, that you've been on the show discussing in the past, where does this one rank for you? Or in other words, does this one get a recommend from you? What do you think? What do you have to say? Well, I already um, bashed direct action <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> um, direct contact, I believe, was the second one. Was the name of the second one I did, um, where the guy gets thrown out the window and explodes. Um, yep. Which I mean, I, you, you can't beat that as a as a final death. Um, but this one, I, I did enjoy those for what they were worth. But this one, far and away, exceeds them. Um, I, you know, I, I don't have many bad things to say about this. Uh, I, I went in with, with kind of low hopes. Maybe that's why I'm thinking so highly of it because I didn't have the highest of hopes for this. Um, but I mean, I, I was blown away. I was, you know, I, I, my, um, the reality far exceeded my, my expectations. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you liked it. Uh, uh, thank you Tubi. right? Thank God mm. for Tubi TV. Indeed. Right? <laughs> um, Indeed. Well, you know, as far as my recommend goes, I mean, I'm right there with you as usual. Um, I would say for me personally, uh, not just as a Dolph fan, but as a, as a fan of these type of movies in general, yes, this easily gets a recommend. Like I said earlier, I mean, I, I hate to keep uh, using this this term, but this is a very simple meat and potatoes action movie. But it also hits the tried and true mant- mantra of what you and I have kind of in a roundabout way dis- been discussing. Uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I think that's exactly what this film does. It's a great tale of two warring assassins being manipulated by Russian gangs. Plus, Derek Kolstad, the the mastermind behind John Wick, who gave us John Wick, uh, he has a hand in this one again. So it's a really, I I, I found it to be a real treat seeing Dolph in a uh, John Wick type world. Um, Mm -hmm. I think this is the closest we're ever going to get to seeing Dolph in a John Wick film. So on that end, I will definitely take it. Mr. Lundgren is not at center stage of the film, but as we've also been discussing at length, I mean, he is easily the best thing about this film. He is what elevates this film from being a fairly rote and generic action thriller. So I will say to anyone who is on the fence about uh, checking this out, I will say if the idea of Dolph Lundgren playing a hitman who dresses like Frank Sinatra in Hawaiian shirts and tossing grenades and welding dual pistols that sounds like a good time to you, then you're in for a real treat. Yeah, it's just a couple of badass action guys doing their thing. Well, hey, Doug, thank you again. Uh, I, I love uh, chatting with you, and I love having you on. Uh, before I let you go, is there anything uh, that, that you're working on or anything that you want to plug? I, I guess I should probably say uh, that you and I are uh, – on the same network. I mean, obviously this particular podcast has its own feed, but I'm also now uploading uh, the episodes to an additional feed where we can also see your show, the last of the action heroes podcast network. Yeah. We, uh, we got a bunch of brain trusts together guys from the original era of action. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm the host of Rocky minute uh, where we dissect the Rocky movies, one minute of film time at, at each episode. Um, and uh, yeah, we we got a, a couple other Stallone podcasts on there. We got Slycast, and we got uh, Ryan, the, the Godfather's uh, um, Rocky uh, Going the Distance, the Rocky series podcast. Uh, we got uh, you, 
in your Gol- uh, Dolph Lundgren podcast. We got a Schwarzenegger podcast. We got a Bruce Willis podcast, a Steven Seagal podcast, uh, uh, James Bond. I think the only thing we're missing is a Van Damme one. And then we really got the, uh, the, the holy, uh, you know, I uh, would say Trinity, but that's <laughs> way more than yeah. three. But, uh, you know, the, the, the holy, uh, the Knights of the Round Table of action, action heroes. Uh, but yeah, we're the last of the Action Heroes podcast network. We all share the same feed. So, uh, you know, if there's something, if you're not into, I don't know, Schwarzenegger, say, uh, you know, you could skip the Schwarzenegger shows. They're all titled, um, you know, uh, aptly. So pick out the ones you like. We're, we're all on there. We're all having a great time over there, too. I know you guys are grinding your way, your way through uh, Rocky Three at the minute, right? I think when you and I were speaking offline, mm-hmm. you guys are at minute 38 in Rocky Three. Is that right? Yeah, we have 38 episodes uh, recorded. Some are edited, some are ready to go. Uh, I just um, I have to clean up uh, the bulk of them, and then uh, get f- we're, right now we're re-releasing um, season two. We're in the middle of re-releasing season two on the feed. Uh, once that's done, I'll have uh, the first uh, bulk of season three ready to go. So, um, yeah, I know that it's for. For for the real uh, Rocky Minute fans out there, there's it's been quite the long wait. Uh, you know, there's been a couple of major life events that uh, that had stalled the production, but um, they're there. We're still grinding it out, and uh, and it's coming. I promise. Well, hey, cool. Uh, well, to everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews. And closing out this episode will be a sampling of Frank Sinatra's Fly Me to the Moon. Seeing as how Dolph Lundgren's look in the film is uh, very Sinatra-esque, I figured it was only fitting to end the episode with this particular song. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next time on I Must Break This Podcast. Fly me to the moon Let me play among the stars And let me see what spring is like On Jupiter and Mars In other words Hold my hand In other words Baby, kiss me Fill my heart with song and let me sing forevermore. You are all I long for, all I worship and adore. In other words, please be true. In other words.